Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, I'm joined by David Neal, the executive producer for the FIFA World Cup at Fox Sports, who discusses his more than 30-year career and Fox's extensive plans to cover this summer's tournament in Russia, that includes details of how he has built relationships in Russia, how a typical day goes for him during the event, and why Fox is relying more on American voices to cover the World Cup than we have seen other networks do in the past. We have great American voices. We are an American network. We are entertaining an American audience. So to me, it makes complete and perfect sense to be featuring the American voices that we are fortunate enough to have. All that and more coming up. Our guest today on the podcast is, full disclosure, one of my bosses. But don't let that scare you away. David Neal is one of the most respected producers in sports television, with a career spanning more than three decades at places like NBC, where he produced mega events like the Olympics, the NBA Finals, and the World Series, and later at Univision. For the past six years, David has been at Fox Sports, where he's the executive producer for the FIFA World Cup, and will be running the broadcast that you see this summer from Russia, he also happens to be a really good guy. David, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Greg. Can you do every introduction for me in the future? <laughs> sure. Very nice. Uh, lots to talk about. Obviously, we're less than 100 days away from the start of World Cup 2018 in Russia. You ran a very successful Fox production of Women's World Cup 2015 in Canada. I'm wondering what lessons from that tournament can you apply to this Men's World Cup and What's different about this summer's event compared to 2015? Well, you'll recall that one of my uh, uh, favorite and, and, and most used phrases when we were all in Canada together in 2015 was that the, uh, the World Cup was a marathon, not a sprint. Yes. Uh, and, and that's absolutely true uh, for the men as well. And in some ways, it's, uh, it's an Ironman, not a marathon. It's, it's, uh, it's obviously, it's more matches, 64, more teams, 32. Um, and unlike Canada in 2015, where uh, we were in the most favorable time zone situation you could get, you know, being in Canada obviously is very, very much like being at home in the U.S. Um, we are quite literally halfway around the world, uh, operating in an environment that is uh, unfamiliar to most of the uh, group that we'll have over there. So every bit of it is is more challenging. But I do think that we build on the lessons that we all learned. Uh, in 2015 with the, the FIFA Women's World Cup. We, we build on the understanding that uh, it's a month-long event that you can't allow yourself to get burnt out by going too hard, too fast, too soon. You have to pace yourself like uh, a good athlete. And most important is, is storytelling that is absolutely paramount, particularly in the environment that we're going to be in absent the U.S. men's team. Storytelling has got to be at the heart of everything that we do. We've got to give our viewers multiple reasons to care, to get engaged, uh, to become involved, to have rooting interests for players and teams uh, throughout the World Cup. Yeah, let's get this out of the way quickly here. The U.S. obviously failed to qualify for Russia 2018. How has that influenced your strategy choices on how Fox is going to deliver this tournament to a U.S. audience? You know, uh, in a lot of ways, it, it didn't change our philosophy because uh, you know, going into it, we, we knew that you know, we were luckily going to have the best players in the world um, there, and, and the U.S. going out 
frankly didn't change that. Probably one of the reasons why the U.S. didn't qualify because we don't have the best players in the world. So the, the fact is, we still have uh, you know the big three that uh, that we are emphasizing: um, Neymar, uh, Ronaldo, and Messi. We have them. We will we will uh, make a a big storytelling effort behind those three. We have great teams. We we have a great draw. The draw that came out really couldn't have been any better for us, particularly under the circumstances, to have promotable matches every day through the first 15 days of play throughout group stage. Uh, that's a dream come true for us. The second day of, of play, it's, it's sort of the Ronaldo Bowl. We've got uh, Portugal, Spain, uh, which is just a tremendous early match to have. So um, do we wish the U.S. were there? Of course we do. Uh, but the fact is now, instead of having one team that we would have uh, put um, extra emphasis on, we have 32. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are going to go after all 32 of those teams and their stories uh, with, with, with great exuberance and with a lot of storytelling. And I really do think uh, it's going to carry us through in a very, very strong fashion. Now, there is a lot that goes into planning broadcasts for a World Cup and presumably even more when you're televising that World Cup from Russia. Could you lead me through the story of when you started working to plan this World Cup and how many times you have visited Russia and what that has all involved? Sure. It's, uh, I've been there 16 times <laughs> for for this event. I've actually, I think, all told I've been to Russia 18 times for those other two trips were for Olympic things uh, during my time at NBC. So 16 trips uh, specifically for the, uh, the 2018 World Cup. Uh, the first trip was actually before uh, the Women's World Cup. It was in 2014. Hmm. Uh, a small group of our core production and technical people made a trip over there in 2014 just basically to get the lay of the land. Um, and And really, more than anything, Grant, the reason for the numerous trips is it's about relationship building. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big differences between a global event like the World Cup or the Olympic Games is that unlike a Super Bowl or a World Series where when Fox is there, we're the, the you know, dominant primary uh, rights holder mm-hmm. in that stadium, you go into a World Cup environment and we're one of over 200 rights holders from around the world. So you quickly have to understand that there's a much different way of producing an event like that, of interacting with the organizing committee, with the uh, uh, with the overall authority. In this case, uh, that would be FIFA. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand that while the United States is certainly uh, a very important market for all of those uh, stakeholders, we're not the only one. You know, mm-hmm. far from it. So many, many trips have to be made just to build relationships, because you know, even in this day of of, uh, of Skype and and FaceTime and all that, there's still no substitute for sitting across the table with someone that uh, you need to work with and partner with. Uh, and so we've done that uh, on multiple occasions. The studio that Fox Sports built for the Women's World Cup in 2015 in Vancouver was pretty incredible. I think our listeners will remember that and the amazing views over the water. And I know that the studio that's being built for Fox in Red Square for this tournament is kind of amazing. Uh, to put it as an understatement, could you describe what it's going to be like for our listeners? Yeah, I'm very excited about it. And it is one of those things that is a direct a byproduct of the, the many trips and the uh, strong relationship building that we've uh, undertaken over these past few years. 
Well, we will be the only broadcaster out of you know some 200 who will be there in Russia, the only broadcaster with a standalone studio in Red Square. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, as you know from having been in Russia and anyone who has been there before knows, Red Square is hallowed ground. It is a very, very sensitive area from a security standpoint and a very culturally and historically important place uh, in, in all of Russia. So for us to have gotten permission to have our own footprint, our own standalone studio, uh, is really extraordinary. There will be other broadcasters, uh, some dozen or so broadcasters, very close to us, but they'll be sharing what's called a multilateral facility so that they will each have a, um, a, a space in that facility, but basically with a limited view of, of Red Square. We instead will have our own facility, multiple windows, multiple uh, looks, uh, the pr- predominant view behind uh, Rob and and uh, and Fernando and all of our our uh, studio talent will be uh, uh, of St. Basil's Cathedral, mm-hmm. and then off just slightly a uh, camera left will be the the walls of the uh, the Kremlin itself. So it's a spectacular location. It's one you know visuals are very important, obviously in television. It sort of goes without saying, uh, but it will demonstrably. Uh, and emphatically tell our viewers every day where we are. There'll mm-hmm. be no doubt where Fox is anchoring and hosting uh, coverage from. It'll be in the heart of Russia, in the heart of Moscow, uh, you know, in, in the iconic uh, Red Square. So I'm extremely excited about it. This is the first men's World Cup since 1990 in which ESPN or ABC has not been the U.S. English language broadcaster. Now, they did great work. Uh, what does Fox plan to do that might be similar to what they did, and what might Fox do that's a little different? Yeah, just to, to begin with, the the bar that ESPN set for coverage of the World Cup is incredibly high. You know, they certainly, I think, are the gold standard in terms of uh, uh, domestic rights holding uh, television uh, of the World Cup. They just did a fabulous job repeatedly. So what we're going to do is is take that standard and advance it. You know, we certainly want to uh, uh, live up to it in every regard and in as many ways as possible we want to uh, to build on it. Um, you know, I think one of the ways that, that we're going to do that from the very beginning is by having all 64 matches live, uh, both on linear television, whether it's Fox or, or, or FS1, and also streaming live. Mm-hmm. But most exciting to me is that 38, of those 64 matches will be on, on the broadcast network will be on Fox, uh, uh, which to me is just an extraordinary uh, statement of the importance that this property has for our entire company. And those 38 matches that we'll put on uh, FBC are more than the aggregate total of the previous four world cups combined in the United States. So if you total up all of the broadcast coverage of every world cup for the four preceding ones before us, and put that number together, you still have less than the number we're going to broadcast on free-to-air television in one World Cup. So it's a, it's a really, to me, an extremely positive step forward. Um, and it just, I think, speaks again to the, to the continued growth of popularity of this sport in our country. So how is a typical World Cup match day going to work during the group stage on the Fox Sports broadcast? We'll come on the air an hour before uh, the first match of the day. Uh, throughout group play, for the most part, that's 7 a.m. Eastern time with, uh, with the first match of the day starting at 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. So we'll do an hour pregame show from Red Square. 
then off we'll go to match number one. We'll come back at halftime. Uh, we'll come back for what we call a bridge show between uh, the end of game one and the start of game two. Do another halftime, another bridge show between the end of game two and the start of game three, a post-game show. And then after the post-game show, we'll turn around and prepare to do a one-hour World Cup tonight, uh, which I'm excited about the distribution plan for that as well, because World Cup tonight is the only uh, platform that we'll have in Russia that will be on the air for 32 consecutive days. It'll be on every day, including rest days. Uh, it'll also be on uh, weeknights uh, on Big Fox, on FBC, for an hour. Um, uh, I like to remind everybody that it'll be the first regularly scheduled network late night show on Fox since Arsenio. So we're going to try to live <laughs> up to that and have at least as much fun as that. Um, but but again, it, it's it's a very long day. It, it kind of speaks to what we were saying before about that it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, we're we're doing well over 300 hours of television over a month uh, of of the World Cup. So that you know, even even my. Uh, uh, rudimentary math tells me that's you know an average of something around 10 hours a day of te- television from Russia. So it's uh, a very long day, a very comprehensive day in terms of coverage, and we uh, we intend to make it a very informative and entertaining day for our viewers. We do have some listeners to this show who are students who want to go into your line of work someday. What do you yourself do during a typical day of the tournament? For me, um, we have a production call uh, it's because people are spread out around the country and and like um, most broadcasters now we have a significant uh, presence that'll stay home in the u.s so we have a, a daily production call uh that puts together all the uh major operating units and our on-air talent who aren't on airplanes at that moment so in the morning 10 a.m um uh in, in moscow we'll have a call and then i'll be in the broadcast center uh, throughout the competition day, um, because that's really the 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 heart of all of our operations is in the IBC, and that's uh, in suburban Moscow. Um, and it's really a, just a situation of, of 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 being there to see what happens, to watch stories as they develop. But at the same time, a lot of these relationships that we've talked about uh, that have been built over the the past years leading up to the World Cup, those relationships still come into play. And if we are trying to get a camera somewhere, if we're trying to get an interview with someone, a lot of times those relationships come to the uh, come to our assistance as well. So it's it's a long day of watching what's going on. It's a long day of thinking ahead to what we're going to do the next day, um, and, and some of it is is just reactive uh, to the various storylines and results that play out. I know you'll have some studio analysts and at least one host, Kate Abdo, from different countries during the tournament. But I have been struck by the fact that Fox perhaps appears willing to go with more American-accented voices on its soccer broadcast than some other networks. Is that an accurate perception? Yeah, uh, that's absolutely accurate. And, and I think it's also uh, in, indicative of the continued growth of soccer in our country. When you take a play-by-play voice like John Strong, who is uh, clearly our number one play-by-play voice and arguably uh, the preeminent American play-by-play voice in soccer across any network, you can't do better than that. Our audience is predominantly um, American, and we have the best American voice. In, in J.P. Delacamera, you have another strong American voice um, who is a veteran, and, and it really follows right down through the ranks of, of our play-by-play voices. So uh, we have great American voices. We are an American network. We are 
uh, entertaining an American audience. So to me, it, it makes uh, complete and perfect sense to be uh, featuring the American voices that we are fortunate enough to have. And you'll have three hosts, main hosts for your studio shows. Who are those three hosts? We haven't announced all of our talent, but but you have correctly guessed that okay. Ross Stone, of course, is is, uh, um, is our our lead host, Kate Abdo, and then Fernando Fiore. Uh, who we could do an entire podcast just on no further than that. <laughs> we'll have Fernando on the podcast sometime soon here, I think. Uh, he's got a great you won't, story. You won't have to say much. When you have him on, you won't have to say much, Grant. Uh, um, and I want to step back a little bit and talk about your career. You were at NBC for more than 30 years. What's your story of how you got into this business? Uh, it like Like many... In our business, it uh, started with family. My my father, Roy Neal, was a uh, NBC News network correspondent for 37 years. Mm. Uh, his specialty was the space program, um, and he met my mom, Pat, uh, in the uh, early 60s when my mom was working for NASA. She was working in public affairs. Uh, basically, her job was to represent the original seven astronauts when she met my dad. So oh, that wow. if someone wanted to... If, if Life magazine wanted a, a, a photo of uh, Alan Shepard or John Glenn to go on their cover, they would they would work through my mom in the public affairs office to get that done. And the same was true for, for television uh, news. So that's how my mom and dad met. Um, they were married, moved my brother and I out to California when we were both very, very young. So it was truly in the sort of the family business was television. Mm -hmm. um, I went to the University of Southern California, uh, my degrees in journalism. Um, I wanted to follow my father and, and, and be in front of the camera, but uh, a, a legendary man named Don Olmeyer, who, who sadly just recently passed away, uh, Don Olmeyer hired me right out of college, right out of USC, to be a production assistant for NBC Sports in New York. So I moved from, from, uh, from uh, L.A. to New York, went to work for NBC in 1978, uh, my first Olympics was going to be the Moscow Olympics, uh, coincidentally, huh. of 1980. Of course, the United States ended up not going. But uh, I, I, the Olympics was, was the reason that I started right at the network level. And uh, between working for Don and then later for Michael Weissman and, and then for the longest time for Dick Ebersol, I worked for some incredibly talented and creative people, and I learned a ton from them. What sort of things did you learn producing the Olympics for NBC that still apply today to producing a World Cup? Well, it goes back to storytelling. That that is first and foremost uh, what you have to do. You, it has to become part of your 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 daily thinking. You know, one of the things that that Dick Ebersol used to talk about uh, with all of us was that at the Olympics you were going to have a number of viewers who would watch because they want to see the United States athletes do well or because they are attracted to the global nature of the event. Um, and that core viewing group can make you very successful. But the difference between being successful and having a hit is when you pull in fans who are either casual sports fans or maybe not sports fans at all, but instead they, uh, they are attracted to the pop culture nature of a big event like the Olympics or, in, in our case, uh, the World Cup. They get to that situation where they're standing in line with their friends in the morning at Starbucks, and their friends say, did you see what happened 
last night? Did you see what Lindsey Vaughn did? Or did you, or for us, did you see what, what Lionel Messi did last night? And they want to be part of that conversation. So maybe even those people might not be uh, sports fans uh, at all, but they are pop culture fans. And they want to be part of the conversation. So what Dick always talked about was making sure that through storytelling, we bring athletes and their stories to life. In effect, you try to line your broadcast with little pieces of Velcro, little little sticky points so that a viewer who might give you 30 seconds or a minute of, of sampling as they're, as they're uh, looking around to see what they're going to watch on a given evening, you give that point that maybe will get them to stop and stick for a while to, to say, wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, and the, we believe that if you produce great television, that the longer they stay, the greater our opportunity that we're going to hold them and convert them into viewers. And really, with the Olympics, and, and I, would, I would submit that the same is true with the World Cup, what you want to do is create um, a habit of viewing. You want to become appointment television for your viewers. At NBC, the thing that we used to think was always the best uh, indicator of a successful Olympics was when focus groups would tell us that viewers on the morning after the closing ceremony reported feeling withdrawal, reported feeling huh. uh, an absence because they had become so accustomed to watching the Olympics and, and they weren't able to do that anymore. And we heard some anecdotal evidence of that after the Women's World Cup in Canada in 2015, that after uh, the U.S. women had, had, had won their, their third championship, the first since 1999, that on that day after the event was over and there was no more Women's World Cup to watch, we heard similar things, that people missed seeing us. And so that is really what you want. You want viewers to become so accustomed to watching and listening to you. They invite you into their homes day after day, and you want it to become appointment television. Does it make your job any easier that at a World Cup as opposed to an Olympics, everyone's eyeballs are basically on the same thing at the same time in terms of not having a bunch of different sports having that are happening at the same time at an Olympics? Grant, without question, it does. You know, I, I was fortunate enough through most of my uh, career, particularly the uh, the last decade or so at NBC, to work very closely with with uh, one of my best friends in the world, with with Bob Costas. And um, I would produce the primetime show at the Olympics, and Bob, of course, was our host. And each night, we'd have to craft the not only the opening of the show, but really all the studio portion to essentially educate the viewers on what they're going to see on a given night. Uh, early in the Olympics, it's usually uh, swimming and gymnastics that are really driving you through most nights of primetime. But then you uh, have a beach volleyball story that might be interesting. And then midway through the Olympics, track and field would start and diving would take over for swimming. And so really it was a, a situation each night of having to say, here's what's on tap. Here's what's interesting about those elements. Here's why you should watch us. And here we go. And and Bob, you know, honestly, I think Bob and Jim McKay are the two best ever in the history of our business for being uh, guides for the viewer, for being uh, so adept at saying to viewers, here's what you're going to see uh, and here's why it's important. So for us, it's a terrific luxury knowing that every day when we come on the air is for a singular sport. And so to some degree, viewers already know coming in, I'm watching soccer. We don't have to educate them on different sports. Instead, we want to be informative about the nuances of soccer, and we want to make them fully aware of who's playing that day and why it's significant. Is England playing today? Is Brazil playing today? Are the defending champion Germany playing today? Is Messi playing today? Is Neymar playing today? So you still need to brief the viewers and give them reasons to care, 
But you're right that it's a luxury to have one sport day after day, as opposed to, you know, the Summer Olympics now, it's some 35 different sports that you have to sort through every day. You were also at Univision for a few years before you came to Fox. What did you see at Univision about how Latinos in the U.S. consume the sport of soccer? It was one of the most fortunate things that ever happened to me in the overall uh, uh, scheme of things in terms of my career path. Uh, another great influence on my career is Randy Falco, the uh, the CEO of, of Univision, and we had been together for many years at NBC. So he offered me the opportunity to come to Univision uh, to launch Univision Deportes Network, the uh, 24-hour cable uh, sports network for Univision. Uh, and what it afforded me was the opportunity to be fully immersed um, in the Latino passion for soccer, mm-hmm. for football. Uh, it, one of the um, adages at uh, Univision was the five most popular sports with their audience were soccer, 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 and boxing. <laughs> Uh, so that's pretty much what you needed to know on a daily basis. And uh, one of the first times I really got to know Fernando was during the the, the usual Copa America, the one the Condom Ball runs mm-hmm. uh, in 2011. Fernando and I flew down to Argentina, which is where he's from, uh, because Univision had the Spanish language rights in the U.S. to Copa America. And we went down to Argentina for the, the two semis and the final. And being with Fernando... Being in Argentina, even though Argentina didn't make it to the final, but being in a soccer uh, bastion of a country like Argentina, being there with one of their um, favorite uh, uh, homegrown television personalities and being fully immersed in in the passion that fans in South America have for soccer, it it was an education unlike any I could have had. And it was so fortunate for me when David Hill... And Eric Shanks contacted me about uh, the possibility of coming to Fox for the World Cup. The fact that I had been with Univision, immersed in soccer, and particularly immersed in soccer in the uh, Hispanic world, it was an absolutely invaluable way to prepare me for this job. Russia is a complex country. It's got a fascinating culture. It's got a fascinating soccer culture as well. Parts of the country are absolutely gorgeous, and the host nation's team is always a big story. At the same time, Russia has also been punished for state-sponsored doping in the sporting realm in the Olympics. How will you balance all of that, and it's a lot, and present Russia in all its complexities during this tournament? Well, there are a number of ways, and I I do think that Russia is a very uh, positive aspect of our coverage and an opportunity for us to... uh, make our coverage even more interesting and, again, to cast a wide net to attract viewers who may not be necessarily soccer fans or sports fans but who are interested in the world in general. Um, I saw a, uh, a statistic a couple of weeks ago from a, a travel uh, an industry magazine that said that interest in travel to Russia among American tourists is up 12% year over year. Hmm. So uh, uh, either despite or maybe because of the various levels of intrigue between our two countries, Americans are more and more interested in Russia. It's a huge country. It's a very diverse country. And we're going to make them really, if, if you consider that the 32 teams are the protagonists and the antagonists, the cast of characters for the World Cup, then the 33rd character for us is the home country, is, is, mm-hmm. is Russia. And one of the primary ways that we're going to bring Russia to life, that we're going to uh, 
really find the things about Russia that we think will be extremely interesting to our viewers is through our partnership with National Geographic. Mm-hmm. Um, we rolled out a sort of a beta version of that during the Confederations Cup last summer um, with our National Geographic explorer, Sergei Gordiev, who's a really interesting guy. He was born in Moscow, but grew up in Texas. So he's a, <laughs> a, a, sort of an interesting hybrid in that way. But he's a, he's a master storyteller. By his, by his own admission, he knows zero about sports, nothing about soccer, nothing about anything. And I think that that's actually a, a positive. I think it's a, a refreshing uh, perspective to bring into our coverage of someone who knows the country he was born in very well. He's uh, very passionate about his country. He has a great sense of story. He, he, he had stories ranging from uh, one of Stalin's dachas that is still preserved the way it was. And one of the things about it is that it had uh, no carpeting anywhere in the entire building because Stalin's uh, thinking was he never wanted anybody to be able to sneak up on him. He always wanted to be able to hear those footsteps coming behind him. So we had a story on that, but then the next day he had a story on, on Russian tea. You know, we've all heard about uh, the Russian tea room and places like that. Well, where does that tradition come from? And, uh, you know, he really has a great eye for, for stories that have nothing to do with sports, but have everything to do with, with the host country. So Russia will be an absolute robust character and part of our coverage daily. Um, as news breaks, we will certainly um, react to that. But we are going in very excited about the fact that it's a country that Americans have uh, a great interest and a growing interest in. Now, did you hire a composer also to produce music for Fox's production? We did. Uh, the uh, the Composer's name is Kirill Richter. He's 25 years old. Wow. Uh, he was an, uh, an army, a self-described army brat. So uh, he grew up uh, moving around with his parents because his, his dad uh, kept getting assigned to different bases around the uh, country. So he uh, describes playing on, uh, on different uh, you know, motorized vehicles uh, on the army bases that the kids were allowed to kind of climb over as, as kids will do. And then he started university, and this is, you can't make this stuff up, Grant. He started university just a few years ago, because he is only 25. Right. Uh, his major was nuclear physics. <laughs> and he at some moment had an epiphany and decided instead of being a nuclear physicist, he wanted to be a composer. <laughs> as you do? <laughs> uh, yeah, as you would, of course. Um, I mean, to me, the, 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 he's such a, he is truly a great kid. And I can say that he's, he's uh, yeah, more than twice his age. He's a great kid. He's very engaging. He's obviously extremely talented. Um, he's a pianist uh, uh, primarily, but uh, a gifted composer. Uh, and the the theme song for our coverage of the uh, of the 2018 World Cup uh, that he just created and we just released on the 100 day uh, celebration uh, back on on March 6th. 6th. It is uh, memorable. It is stirring. It is dramatic. And it's one of those pieces of music that just perfectly lends itself to having video um, associated with it, to having highlights, to having moments of passion and drama and emotion. Um, He's an enormously talented young man and has really created some great music for us. It is really cool. I posted the YouTube video that was released by Fox of that composition and, and the historical highlights of the World Cup that goes along with it on my Twitter. So uh, anyone listening should check that out. It's it's pretty incredible. Uh, we're about to wrap up here. I appreciate you taking this much time. 
I guess in general terms, I'm curious to know, how will you define success for Fox Sports broadcasting this tournament? Well, you know, there are numerous ways to, to measure the success of, 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 of television. Um, obviously, ratings matter. Um, this is a, it's a very difficult uh, event to directly compare to 2014, obviously, because the, the time zones are completely different. And uh, the United States was, was in Brazil, which you know, sadly they will not be in Russia. Um, but we want to see, see positive numbers. We want to see uh, indication that viewers are, are, are with us, and we want to build that audience as we go along. We want to start with a good number and, and, and build from there. But uh, you also can measure these days by things like uh, social media. You can measure by audience engagement. Um, and we'll be doing all those things, the various uh, empirical tools that our research people have to measure audience interest. And really, at the, at the end of every day, Grant, much as, as you as a journalist, I'm sure, apply this same standard to your own work, you know your, your, your work and your level of success better than anyone. Right. And at the end of the day, whether it's Rob Stone or myself or any of our enormously talented group, we'll know if we've done well. Um, you can't let yourself get too caught up in the, uh, in the noise of, of, of critics and social media and all that because uh, that can become a cacophony that sometimes makes sense, often doesn't. Um, but I think that we will know if we are doing what we are setting out to do. And I will tell you, again, we know the bar has been set very high in the past. We're going there intending to not only equal that, that standard of coverage, but we intend to surpass it. And we'll know ourselves if we're, if we're succeeding at that, uh, at that goal. Lastly here, I, I just am curious to know, we're less than 100 days away from the opening game of the World Cup. What are the main tasks on your plate between now and then? You know, it, it's, it's amazing how many little bits and pieces remain. Um, I used to be asked when I was running the Olympics, you know, what worried me? And my answer was always everything. <laughs> um, I was also asked quite often when I would stop worrying, and I said not until the closing ceremony. Um, and those uh, emotions uh, absolutely apply here, too. Everything worries me. You know, we, again, we're, we're operating uh, half a world away from the United States. Um, we're af- operating in an environment that's unfamiliar to most of our, our team. And you've got 64 games to cover over uh, a month's time. Uh, you've got to hope that nobody gets the flu. You've got to hope that, uh, that uh, nobody gets lost. You've got to hope right. that... Uh, that people get enough rest. And, you know, you also need to hope that you get some great compelling matches. I would love to see um, Ronaldo or, or, or Messi or, or Neymar do something spectacular in that first week. I'd love to see somebody make a run that, uh, that captures people's imagination. I'd love to see Iceland do something like they did uh, in, in the Euros a couple of years ago. Um, love to see England do well. I'd love to see England, England you know, get well into the knockout rounds. Um, so some of it is completely beyond your control. We have zero uh, ability to affect what happens on the pitch, but you hope for those great heroic moments. And then really I think the truest test of, of, a, of a broadcaster is that if you, when you're creating television coverage, if you rise to the moment, if you've got a spectacular, memorable, uh, uh, astonishing moment that takes place on the field of play, as broadcasters you want to make sure that you are equal to that moment. So that's what I hope for. David Neal, good luck broadcasting the World Cup, and thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Grant. We'll see you in Russia. 
Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank David Neal, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray. That's available for a free trial right now. You can look at si.com for that one. Recent guests include Iris Cisneros, Matt Pence, Danny Hewson, and Andrew Das. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.